Join me in reading from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, I'd like to remind you and at least tell you what I learned about life through marriage a lot. But, um, so let me just begin with this, that uh, I, when I got married, I think I underestimated the, um, the trouble in marriage that can come from smaller things, the non-essential things. When I, when I got married, I thought that the big things were going to be the trouble, right? It, it, differences in philosophies on parenting or financing or getting the car in and out of the garage without hitting the house. I thought those were going to be the things. Yes, that did happen. Uh, but, but I thought those were the things that were going to be troubling us in marriage. I didn't, I didn't estimate correctly uh, that it's often the little things in marriage, in life, that begin to take the joy away. You've probably seen the same thing. It's the, you know, you get married, you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube. Or you don't put the cap on, or no soap in the shower. I know you're thinking, I must be a prince to live with. But the, the reality of it is that's the stuff that begins to bleed the joy out of union or out of friendships. And, and, and it wouldn't surprise you to know that's the same thing in the church. It's the little things. It's the non-essential differences that we have that we don't reconcile that often cause the most amount of problems. Now, Paul's continuing the argument from last week. He's talking about these differences that we have. Now, we're in chapter 15, and last week was chapter 14, but I want you to know that you know, the chapter divisions were not introduced to the Bible until about 1205, early third cent 13th century. The verses were not put in the Bible until the middle of the 16th century. So, so just remember, they're helpful. The chapters and verses are helpful for us to identify places in the scriptures. But the reality is that they often miss the mark. And so Paul is continuing his argument from last week, and it's going to go all the way through verse 13. And, and what he's continuing to say is that the church has differences. And if we cannot learn to navigate them, then we're going to break off into groups and schisms and ultimately even break off into separate churches and thereby denying the culture a witness of the power of the gospel. See, God has designed, I want you to know this, God has designed the differences in us so that in our union we might perfectly display the diverse union of God. So you have God the Father, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, different and yet united. That's what the church is to reflect. A healthy church, a dynamic of a healthy church, is one that gets along, though we're different from one another. It might surprise you to know this, that when Jesus prayed for the church, 
He prayed for the church to be one. He didn't pray for the church to grow. He says, I'll build my church. The numerical issues of the church have always rested with God, never been about us, but the unity of the church. So in John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So Paul's saying, I mean, the whole mission of Christ to the nations is predicated on how we walk together with our differences. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's simply, the first two verses, he's going to appeal to you and me that we would walk in unity. He's going to give us some marching orders, if you will, how we're to do that. And then secondly, in verses three and four, he's going to give us the motivations, tell us how we can not just seek the interests of ourselves. And then in the last two verses, five and six, he's going to show us the result. Here's what's going to be the case when you walk in unity. So he's going to make an appeal to us for unity, and then he is going to give us motivations to walk in unity, and then he shows us the result of it. So we'll just go piece by piece. So look with me in verse one. You'll notice he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. So Paul's making this appeal. You know what he's doing here? He's taking all of you and he's putting you into two groups. He's saying some of you are strong and some of you are weak. Now let me remind you that he's not saying one is a Christian and one's not. They're both Christian. God loves them both. God loves the strong. God loves the weak. But in every church, there are those who are weak and those who are strong. Now, let me remind you what strong means from chapter 14. To be strong in the faith, to be strong here means this, that technically they don't, they don't worry about eating meat and they don't worry about eating wine. That's from chapter 14. But what he's saying is that the strong are free because of the gospel uh, to live without worrying about religious traditions and taboos. In other words, their salvation is so secure in Christ alone that whether they eat meat or drink wine or not drink wine, it doesn't matter. Uh, my salvation is secure in Christ. And the weak are different. The weak are less mature. The weak in this passage are those who get caught up over the technicalities of should I eat this meat or should I drink this wine or should I observe this day or that day? Uh, the weak are more scrupulous. They, they worry more about what they do as affecting whether God will accept them or not. Uh, the weak don't like ambiguities. They're often convicted. I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. And, and, and they're, they're often guilty, feeling as if they're somehow not measuring up. So you have the strong who are free in the gospel to do a variety of things, and you have the weak who believe the gospel, but it hasn't yet given them the freedom to live as they want or to live without worrying about religious tradition. So we have them today, right? So you have people like with media, different views in here on media. Some of you, when your kids were growing up, perhaps you just let them watch Little House on the Prairie and reruns of Mayberry RFD. Others of you, you set the kids up for eight hours, they're going to watch the Harry Potter series and just knock a bunch of them out. Different views on that. There's different views on dress. Some of you want to make sure you have a tie on when you come walking in here. Others of you, you may be in flip-flops and shorts and it's absolutely fine. Or issues of alcohol. Some of you abstain. You don't think it's appropriate to drink alcohol. Others of you think it's great to evangelize with a pint and your bearded friends in the pub. 
You know, it, it's okay. Or dress, you know, so <clears throat> pick any topic you want. We have differences of opinion on these secondary issues. Now, here's what happens. When the weak see the strong exercise their freedoms, oftentimes the weak will judge them. Hey, you're being unwise. You're being unsafe. Maybe some weak will even say, you're being unchristian to do that sort of thing. And the strong will often look down their noses and say, look at you, caught up on the scruples of life. You know, you're, you're straining out gnats while you're swallowing camels, Jesus said. So what Paul's doing is he's writing to both the strong and the weak. But, but, but fundamentally, he's writing to the strong here. He says, we who are strong bear up with the weaknesses. So if you consider yourself strong in the faith with freedoms to enjoy, then Paul has a word for you to bear up the weak. Now, <clears throat> Paul says, in fact, you have an obligation. You have a debt of love. You have a commitment. Paul, Paul is not saying that the weak people, those weak in faith, that they are exempt from loving and serving the strong. He's not saying that. But he clearly shows that the burden of pursuing unity moves in many ways to the strong to bear up with the weaknesses. And what does it mean to bear up? Well, for the strong, if you have freedoms in the gospel and, um, and you know that those other folks around you are weak in terms of they don't have the freedoms, you're to bear with them. That doesn't mean you got to tolerate them or it doesn't mean you got to just endure with them. It doesn't mean you have to be frustrating over all their weaknesses. He's not saying that. To bear up means to kind of come alongside and, and help carry him. So you, know, you think of the guy wounded on the football field and his two buddies come along each side and he puts his arm around and they're burying him as they take him off the field. That's the idea. That the strong, if you're strong in the faith, you are to help them. You're to bear with them. Paul says in Galatians, it's a fulfillment of the law as we bear each other's burdens. Uh, but verse 2 kind of gives a little more explanation about what I'm driving at here. Look with me at 2. It says, let each of us, presumably we who are strong, and Paul's put himself in this camp, by the way. Paul considers himself strong. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, this is interesting. He's saying to you, if you want to pursue unity, you who are strong have to seek to not please yourself, but to please your neighbor. Now, in Scripture, being a man pleaser or pleasing people is, is frowned upon. Even Paul said in Galatians, he said, if I were still trying to please man, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. So, so who are you going to please kind of thing? I think Paul's speaking differently here. When he says that you're not to please yourself, but you are to please your neighbor, he's talking in the context of these non-essentials of should I eat meat, should I drink wine, should I observe this day, should I wear this clothing, should I listen to this music, should I pay attention to this media. He's saying please them for their good. In other words, if you have the freedom to do this and it may hurt or injure your brother or sister, then don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't please yourself. I know you've got the right to do it, but he's saying just don't do it. Don't please yourself in this manner. Uh, please your brother. Uh, don't do it to capitulate to him. Uh, I'm not saying that he can do anything he wants and, and you're going to lower the demands of the gospel. I'm just saying if there are freedoms that you have and they can injure harm or cause your brother to stumble, just pass on it. That's what he means to build up. Your goal, if you're strong... Your goal is to build those around you up. That word build up is an architectural term. So it's like framing up a house. 
you know, it, it's putting all the framing, all the rooms. It makes the house usable. And so what you're doing is, if you're strong, you're trying to say, how can I intersect? How can I live among these people in a way that they are growing in their maturity, that they're being conformed to the image of Christ? So if you're an older Christian and you're with a younger Christian, uh, you might not. If you feel free to have a glass of wine at dinner, you might pass. Just because it may cause him to stumble. It may cause him to be confused. Not because you can't have it but you want to build them up. You don't want to tear them down. We're doing the work of construction here among people, not the work of demolition. Do you remember back in chapter 14, he said, don't destroy the work of God in the use of your freedoms. That's all he's saying, to build them up. So let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself strong or weak? Just answer the question in your own mind. I mean, you don't need to say it out loud. Do you think that you're strong? Do you have such an understanding of the gospel that you have freedoms to enjoy that don't impact whether God loves you or not? Or, or do you feel a little weakened in the faith? You do feel a little bit more bound to certain traditions and rules and behaviors that you have to do for God to love you. Because the strong is quickly identified as the one who is bearing patiently with others. He involves others into his life. He's trying to build them up. Uh, the, the strong is, is the woman who is able to say, I'm not going to do this because it might harm them. I, I know I have the right, but my responsibility to them it's bigger than my right to exercise. Uh, the, the strong are concerned to make sure that those around them are growing in the faith. That's the mark of the strong. Do you think you're strong? Do you see those marks? Do you have someone in your life that you're kind of nurturing along in the faith, that you're willing to modify your decisions so as to help them? Well, you might ask, well, what's it look like? I mean, what does it mean for me to bear them up or to build them up? Well, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, it would be in the way you speak to people. It would be in the way you speak. So if you were a strong Christian, when you engage in a conversation, your primary goal is for their benefit, not for what you get to say or the things you get to unload. The strong person says, what can I say to help this person grow in the faith? How can I say words that would be beneficial to them? I, I'm going to take into consideration the situation that they're in, and I'm going to take into consideration their background, and I'm going to speak in a way for their benefit. Uh, the, the strong person usually walks away from a conversation knowing more about that person than that person knows about him. Uh, a picture of a weak Christian in a conversation, generally speaking, is, is doing all the talking, never asking questions, drawing the conversation back to him or herself. Uh, the strong person wants to use his words in a building up way. So Paul says it this way. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So entering a conversation, this is difficult, folks. Sometimes it's easier just to talk about nothing but the football. But, but the strong Christian says, no, this person needs encouragement and I'm going to speak a word of grace in their life that will help them walk by faith. Think about the last 10 conversations you've had. What has been your goal in that conversation? Or maybe it hasn't had a goal. Maybe it's just kind of a rolling, just spew of verbiage. The strong Christian is redemptive in his conversation. That would be a mark of a strong Christian. Another way uh, that this would be evidenced in your life is how you handle your life with others. 
Maybe you're a little more, as I said, free with wine. But if you're at a dinner party and someone else is over here and you know they struggle with alcohol in terms of personally or theologically, you pass on wine. If you know it causes them trouble, you just pass on those rights that you have because you care for them. I'm not talking about acquiescing and bending in to create a problem, but I'm talking about these non-essential matters. But let me broaden it for you. So what's it mean to bear up, or what's it mean to build up? Uh, so the word itself, strong, means with power. The word weak is without power. So think about some of you are strong in terms of your financial position in life. Well, for the strong to bear or to build up the weak, it may be that you share with what you have with others. So well, people often give me an envelope and say, can you just give this to so-and-so? They're having a tough time of it. Don't tell them I gave it to you. Just, just get it to them. They're, they're trying to bear with. They're trying to build up those perhaps who are in a, a weak financial position because they're strong. This is what makes a church one when we're aware of this sort of thing. Or if you have a personality that's very popular, you're very good with people. You know, the, the, the strong bears and builds up with the weak. You find those maybe who are a little more awkward than you. Maybe they're a little more inhibited. They don't get out of their chair as fast at the end of the service. And the strong will take their bold personality, and instead of just going and collecting themselves around their friends that they speak with all week, they're going to go speak with somebody they don't know because they know they may need help in conversation. They may, need, they may be uncertain. They may be new here. Many of you are new here, and you feel like, I don't know anybody here. Well, someone's got to go up to you unless you have the boldness to go up to someone else. So that would be a strong Christian because you're looking to build up other people. Or if you're strong in the faith, if you know the gospel, if you feel comfortable with your relationship with God, then those who are strong in faith, uh, then they will always have one or two people with them, discipling them, pouring in time and energy and effort to seeing Christ formed in them. Listen, if you're strong you ought to always have a disciple or two. You're always meeting with somebody, reading a book together, reading the scriptures together. You're looking to cultivate Christ in people so that when they die or he returns, we're all happy about it. And we're not trying to do some backpedaling and we're shrinking back at his coming. So that's really the picture of the strong. Do you think you're strong? Is the evidence there? in the way you speak, in the way you act, in the way you handle your money or your personality or your discipleship. The strong grow in self-forgetfulness. Now, I know you may be thinking right now, well, what about me? I mean, who's going to take care of me? And where's my joy going to come from? Well, this is the beauty of being strong. Your joy is in their growth. Your joy is in seeing Christ formed in them. This is a question I always ask anybody who would be an elder candidate. Do you love to see Christ formed in people? Are you willing to sacrifice for Christ to be formed in people? If they say, well, I've never really thought about it. That's fine. Let's keep moving forward. We'll keep moving. But, but it's the joy. One author said it this way. He said, love does not seek its own private limited joy but instead seeks its own joy in the good, the salvation, the edification of others. In other words, the strength that God has given you, have they just been enjoyed by you, or are they being poured out to strengthen others? That, that would be a test if you're strong. So what Paul's doing here in the first two verses is he's just appealing to us. He's simply saying, 
you know, to bear up and to build up the weak. Are you doing that? If you're a Christian here, are you walking in a manner of building others up with words, with actions, seeking to disciple? That would be the mark of a strong Christian. So that's Paul's word. But, but I know it's a tall order. For you to grow in self-forgetfulness, for you to not walk in self-pleasure, I mean, it's, it's intuitive to all of us. It's natural. Tom wants what Tom wants. And Tom wants it usually when Tom wants it. I mean, so to not please yourselves is a tall order, is it not? I mean, isn't it hard to say no to my immediate interests? So Paul motivates us with two things in four and five. Excuse me, three and four. He motivates us with take a look at the Son of God and take a look at the Word of God. Look with me in verse three, because Paul knows this is trouble. And so he says in verse three, he says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For Christ did not please himself. Paul turns right to the gospel here. Paul turns right to the, to the central core of Christianity to say that for you to be able to not please yourself, you gotta look at Christ. You gotta, you gotta believe in the gospel. You gotta look at the one who did not please himself. He bore, instead of pleasing himself, instead of walking in self-interest, he bore our reproaches. Now Paul's quoting Psalm 69, verse four, and in this psalm, there's this righteous sufferer who is bearing weaknesses and reproaches that were not his to bear. All these people were reproaching God, and he was bearing it. Jesus is that righteous sufferer. All of your reproaches, all of my sins, all of your weaknesses, all of my foibles, they fell upon him. He didn't please himself. He could have said, hey, this isn't mine to bear. He could have looked to his self-interest. I'm not going to leave glory. He bore our weakness. He is the, he's the quintessential strong one. He laid down his life. He bore our weaknesses and our sin and our reproaches. So when you see the awkward person coming down the hall and you think, I don't have the gas to handle this person. I know they're going to be a drain. I know they've got problems just incredible. I, 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 I can't handle it. You look to Christ and you say, no, he bore my sin. He bore my shame. And you'll find power able to minister to those who have great weaknesses and shortcomings and foibles. It's looking to the gospel. Our bearing weaknesses don't atone for anyone's sin, but our imitation of Christ will build them up. It will shore them up. So when you think, well, how can I not please myself? How can I grow in self-forgetfulness? You've got to treasure the gospel. Listen, here's what I do. So when confronted with this, that I want to serve myself, I don't want to serve someone else, I think the gospel. Here's what happens. When I think about the gospel, I'm reminded of my own weaknesses. When I look at the cross, I get a true evaluation of who Tom Mercer is. He is weak, he's broken, and he's sinful. And he needed the Son of God to come and save him. There was no, you could have given him 100,000 lifetimes. He couldn't have moved towards Christ on his own. And so it humbles me. It crushes any air of superiority I have. It crushes any sort of pride I have over spiritual advancement. It crushes me. And yet at the same time, when I look at the cross, it lifts me up. He loves me. 
He has sent a son to die for me. He didn't do, I didn't do anything to warrant it. God moved with unilateral grace to be kind to me. And he loves me, even when I was a sinner. He didn't wait for me to get kind of good. I'm making, he loved me before I moved. In fact, I was dead. And he loved me before one thing was done. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is really the defining difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. All the religions of the world are common in this one Santa theme. What you do is what you get. If you're good all year, you'll get a gift. That's why the pagans would sacrifice the animal, because we need the rain to water the crops. The gods give you what you give to them. Not so with Christianity. Christianity, he has given to us good. And so the call to walk in light of it is already fueled by grace. It's not a payback. It's not a wage earned. So you have this beautiful picture of Christianity. You have to treasure the gospel. And when you think about him bearing your weakness, you will bear up the weaknesses of others. But then there's a second thing Paul gives us. Look in verse 4. In verse 4, he kind of seems to go like drifting onto this kind of thought that seems unrelated, right? He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying, yeah, treasure the Son of God, treasure the gospel, but also study the scriptures, He just used Psalm 69 to encourage us that Jesus has been our propitiation. And that's how we become Christians. I mean, right? I mean, nobody becomes Christian because you were born in a Christian family. You become a Christian because your eyes have been opened to your sin and you see Christ as a sufficient Savior. And you're encouraged. But Paul says, don't just treasure the gospel, treasure the scriptures. Because in Psalm 69, as in all the scriptures, they are a source of encouragement and endurance for you. In other words, when you look at the scriptures, you see the plan of God. They give you hope so that you can serve those who are weaker. They give you confidence. So in the Bible, hope is not as we use the word, right? We use the word hope today like a wish. I hope it rains later to save my yard that's been scorched for a month. I hope it rains later. I'm hoping. I'm not certain it will, but I'm just hoping it will. In the Bible, when he says it gives you hope, hope is something solid, like a concrete block. It's a future certainty, but it's based upon a past action or past word of God. So we have encouragement and we have endurance through the scriptures. Why? Well, in the scriptures, we find hope to endure because we know that even when we face trials, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We know that in the scriptures, we have hope to endure even in the face of death because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead. In the scriptures, we have hope to endure even with struggling people because we see the saints sprinkled throughout the Testaments as people who endured and were strengthened to finish well. So I would just say to you that for us to be a church that can walk in unity, we need to both treasure the gospel, but also treasure the scriptures. I don't know of any older person, and I've known a few, that finish well apart from knowing the scriptures. I do know a lot of older folks who know the scriptures, and they're finishing well. 
there's endurance and encouragement from God. You see that in verse five? Paul calls God the God of encouragement and endurance. He uses the same two words in verse four because that encouragement and endurance of God comes through the scriptures. So Carol and I were sitting around the other day and we were saying, we're just commenting, this is what you do when you approach 60. You're commenting on how life is challenging when you get older. You know, they always say that, you know, growing old is not for the young. You know, it takes a little bit more horsepower. And being a Christian is sometimes a challenge as the years press on, both with the physical limitations, but also with the hurt and the trials and the struggles that you've gone through. And we were just speaking about if we didn't have the scriptures, if we didn't have the history of God, if we don't have the truth of God and the plan of God, it would be difficult going. In fact, I'm reading in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, I should say, through my Bible reading plan. And I read about all these kings, you know, good kings, Josiah and Hezekiah and Uzziah. And they all faltered at the end. They didn't falter as to fall away, but pride and fatigue and arrogance got into the mix and they all stumbled. I don't want to stumble. I don't want to fall. But when I read the scriptures, I found encouragement and endurance to continue on because of their examples, negative though they may be. So we need the scriptures. If we're going to have a church that walks in unity, if we're going to have a church where you who are strong are able to continue to serve the weak and to build them up and to bear with them, we need to treasure the gospel of God and we need to study the scriptures of God. Okay, what happens when we do this? What kind of church will we be? What's a dynamic, healthy church look like? Well, look at five and six with me. Five and six, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Paul's doing here? He's never met these people in Rome. And he's writing to them what he is praying for them. Do you ever do that with folks? It's incredible. He's telling them, hey, here's how I'm praying for you. Y'all have done that to us many times over the past this course year, you know, with Anna Caroline and the struggles. You'll often send us, here's how I'm praying for you. It's huge. Do it, I'm telling you. Tag it to the end of your letters to hear how you're praying for me. I don't know, to me, it, it just lifts my soul up. This is how they're appealing to God for me. It's like when I hear someone praying for me, when I hear someone praying for someone else, I'm just encouraged how they're appealing to God for them. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, I am praying to God, the God of encouragement and endurance, that you, it might be granted to you, so he's asking God, granted to you to have grace to live with such harmony. Now notice what Paul's not praying for. Paul's not praying that they agree on everything. Paul's not praying that they never have conflict. Paul's not praying that their differences are aligned. This is the way we think about music in this church. This is the way we think about alcohol in this church. This is what we think about media. He doesn't do any of that. He simply says that they would have harmony, that shalom, that peace. And he tells us how it comes. He both prays for it, but it's also, look at the text. He says, in accordance or in following Christ Jesus. In other words, it's as the church is not worried about building commonalities on the secondary issues. As we focus on Christ, as we treasure him, as we love him, as we pursue him, as we walk in light of him, we will be in unity. It's a byproduct of it. 
In other words, Christian unity only exists where we acknowledge and pursue the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As we're all seeking to follow him to the best degree that we can, we will be united. We'll be united. It's no different than than marriage, right? I mean, the differences between Carol and I, they're clear, male and female. That's a decent starting difference, right? Different temperaments. Different styles, different personalities, different backgrounds, different educations, uh, different ethnicities. And yet we're seeking to please God. And that's why he says the two become one. Even though we're quite different from one another. As my dad would say, she was always the better half. But, but even though we're quite different from one another, we become one flesh. And so the church, as we focus on Christ... Though we're different, we become one. So A.W. Tozier, many of you have read his book, The Pursuit of God. It was written in the mid-20th century. He was a pastor in Chicago. And he gave this analogy about, and, and you've probably read it. If not, I shared it about 10 years ago. But, but if you take 100 concert pianos, and, and if you tune the second piano to the first one, and the third one to the second, and the fourth to the third, there will be discord and disharmony. But if you tune all 100 pianos to the same tuning fork, then they're all going to sound the same. And so he says these words in application. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must bow. So a hundred worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God. In other words, if we try to build unity around human commonalities, we don't have a prayer. But if we focus on Christ in our lives, seeking to follow him as the king of our world, then we will naturally find unity to be part of this church. Charles Spurgeon said, we shall all be like-minded with one another when we are like-minded with Christ, but not till then. So this is a community. This is a dynamic community. He's appealing to us to be of one heart where the strong are serving the weak and really both are serving one another. He's motivating us both by the gospel and by the word of God. And he's saying that you will be united. But the unity that we seek here has a purpose and that is the glory of God. And that's what he says. If you look in verse 6, he says that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father. That's the purpose of our unity. The church isn't just to be united so we're a friendly place for people. No, the church wants to be united so that God is honored. Because when different people come together and are in love with one another, serving and sacrificing for one another, you don't see that in the world. It's a glimpse of heaven. What do you think heaven will be like? Well, going to heaven, do you think there'll be divisions and factions and struggles over education and, and, and what we watch and what we drink? Do you think there'll be those struggles there? Don't you think it'll be perfect harmony? No fights? No divisions? Uh, by the way, the differences won't be eliminated in heaven. We know that there'll be every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the ethnicities and the differences of people in this earth will still be there in heaven. The differences will be there. The conflict won't be. The divisions won't be. Well, the church is to be 
a picture of a blooming heaven. So the world is to see us, and they are to get the foretaste. They're to get the look of this is what heaven will be like. Not perfect, but they're to look at us. In fact, one author kind of said it this way. He says, there is one place where we should look for the first fruits of heaven on earth, the local church. It's where we catch the first glimpses of heaven's springtime blossoms. And if you remember at the beginning, the unity of the church declares the reality of Christ. The unity of the church is bedrock. We don't pray for the numbers of the church. We pray for the unity of the church. But we don't just pray for it. We work for it. Do you notice the interplay here? The interplay of divine and human activity? Paul is praying to God and calling them to live with one another well. And that's why he says, welcome one another as you have been welcomed to the glory of God. Because as we receive love and serve one another, the strong to the weak, those who are naturally different from one another. You know, there are people that you are sitting next to that you would never perhaps be with all week long. You're just different. Different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences. You have different interests. But as the church begins to cross those bridges one to the other, yeah, it really looks different to the rest of the world. So think about it just for a minute. What would it be like if we really were overwhelmed with God's glory? That we loved it. We love the beauty of God. We want to enjoy him with each other. Can you imagine the place that we would have? Let's take a few minutes and just, you know, these moments are for you. We have carved out of the service a minute trusting the Spirit of God to bring about admonishment to the idol or comfort to the struggling. And for those of you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the unique part of Christianity is that God has already moved. Maybe it'd be a time for you to ask God to reveal himself to you that you might see all that I'm speaking about. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.